You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Hope you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter... Four verses nine through twenty-two. Second Timothy chapter four verses nine through twenty-two. Today we finish our study through Second Timothy. Next week we will be in the Psalms, and then the week after that we're going to start a fifteen-week study in the life of Abraham, and there in Genesis, and that will be to prepare us to then start a study in the book of Romans in the fall. And so that's. That's the game plan moving forward. But as we are here now this morning, wrapping up 2 Timothy, I want us to think about the fact that every now and then we will hear something about a person's last words. Sometimes it's significant. We hear when people talk about someone's last words. Sometimes it's not as much. Um, John Madison, for instance, when... He died on July 4th, actually, of all dates, uh, being a founder of our country. Uh, When he died, he uttered the words that Jefferson survives. Truth of the matter is, he was wrong in that. Jefferson had actually just died moments before him. And uh, so we see that there are a range of things that maybe someone may utter or as people talk about, or what, what they mean by someone's last or their dying words. And people try to look for what, what is so significant about what they say, because obviously if it's their last words, it's their final words before they close their eyes in death, and they, they, they must be expressing what is closest to their heart, what is uh, most meaningful to them and, and most important to them. Really, though, the truth is in our day, very few people get the opportunity to have last words For very often, before someone dies, they are unconscious for days, and they are heavily medicated to keep them comfortable. And even when someone uh, is not unconscious and and under medication, they are very often in extreme pain and, and do not have their mind about them. But when someone does have the opportunity, leading up to their death, to express themselves, they may find a way to say something very profound. What we see here as we come to 2 Timothy are the Apostle Paul's last recorded words. And though we'll see here this morning that he urges Timothy to come to him quickly, it has already been clear to us, specifically as we saw in chapter 4, verse 6, that Paul expects to be executed very soon. And so as he is writing to Timothy, he is expressing what is so dear to his heart. Loving Timothy deeply like a beloved son. He desires so much that despite the difficulty of ministry, uh, despite those around them that were falling away from the faith, uh, despite the false teachers and the people that foolishly followed them, despite the persecution that was raging against the church, which was why Paul was in prison and about to be executed. What was so important to Paul was that his beloved Timothy would remain faithful. 
So as we close this book, I want us to be thinking about Paul's last words, and not just his last words in, in the last words of this letter, but his last words in reference to the entire letter, in everything that Paul communicated here to Timothy. Paul, who himself remained faithful, and faithful to the end, anticipating a great reward to be with his Lord forever. He wanted Timothy, again, to remain faithful himself and anticipate that same great reward, looking forward to that day. This was so important to him. And so as we think about that fact, how important is faithfulness to each and every one of us? We're a family together, right? If we're brothers and sisters in Christ, how important is each one of our faithfulness to each other? That we would long to see each other persevere and be faithful to end. Uh, see each other uh, be looking forward to that day of great reward when we are with our Lord forever. Do we desire the faithfulness, the perseverance of each one of us? And therefore, too, then, are we keeping perspective on our own perseverance, our own faithfulness, that we ourselves would be faithful to the end. Let's think about these things as we wrap up Paul's letter to Timothy. Last week, we went over Paul's final charge to Timothy as Paul mustered up all the apostolic authority that he could uh, to lay on as heavy as he could a charge to Timothy charging him to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reproof, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And though it was soon coming, and I would urge we see in our day, that people were going to no longer put up with sound teaching, but would heap up teachers around them uh, that would tell them what they want to hear, and so people would wander from the truth into myths. And yet still, Timothy was to always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. As in everything Timothy did, he was to fulfill his ministry. Timothy was to be faithful and faithful to the end, just as his father-like mentor, Paul, was faithful to the end. And so then with that said, let's read our text here for this morning as we pick it up again here in verse 9 of chapter 4. Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left the Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his 
heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Nonciphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudent and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. As we finish this very personal letter, what is really the most personal letter in the New Testament. At first glance, as we look at these words, we might think, well, what what can we really glean from what Paul says here? What can we take away uh, and apply to our lives? And, And again, it may be hard to see that at first glance, but I think as we work through this, we see there's actually a lot here for us. Right away, we see Paul desires to see Timothy before he dies. He tells him to do his best, or he could say, make every effort to come quickly. And the way Paul says this expresses great urgency. We've already said Paul expects to die soon. And on top of that, as others have pointed out, uh, there would be some time that would have to pass between Paul writing this letter and when Timothy would actually receive the letter. And then on top of that, as we go through this passage, we see that there are things that Paul wants Timothy to go and get. And get his coat and get the, the books and the parchment and get Mark. Bring him with you. All those things. And, and that was going to take some time as well. And so not knowing how much time Paul had left and, and the time it would take for Timothy to get the letter and, and to get everything that Paul wanted him to get and bring with him, there was an urgency for Timothy to do everything he could to get to Paul ASAP. And we see that Paul wants Timothy to come to him, as Paul expresses there in verse 10. We see there that there were not many that were with Paul, and for various reasons. And again, knowing the end was near, As Paul was suffering there in the prison, he longed for the companionship and the encouragement that he would receive from brothers in Christ. Some of us can talk about different trials and different uh, painful things that we've gone through. And maybe some of us would give testimony to how those things were made all the harder because you felt like you had to go through it alone. We know how companionship, how brotherhood can Uh, lift us up and strengthen us through our trials. And so as Paul is suffering in prison, again, he longs for that companionship that he was missing. We see there in verse 10, one of the reasons he was missing it was because, it says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas who, as we see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, was a a co-worker of Paul and of Mark and Luke in the gospel. There in Colossians, as Paul was sending greetings to the church in Colossae, he sent greetings from, as he says, the beloved physician Luke and from Demas. And in Philemon, verse 24, Paul sends greetings from Mark, from Demas, and Luke, and he calls them all fellow workers. 
So you have this guy who is a, a trusted laborer in the gospel, a co-worker with Paul, as they work together, and, and but now he's deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica, not because Paul sent him there, but because he was chasing after his own desires. It was because, more than loving the Lord and remaining faithful, he loved this present world. And actually, if we look at that phrase in the original Greek, we would see that uh, from the verb tense, that it says that he, he began to love and he continued to love this present world. And continuing in love for this present world without repentance, that is not the mark of a true believer. Giving our devotion to all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and of the pride of life, as 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, is in contrast to the love of the Father. We do not have the love for the Father. We do not love the Father if we love this world. We're actually made enemies of him if we love this world. The true believer, knowing the love of God, that God loved the world in such a way that he gave his one and only Son, knowing the love of the Savior, that the Son of God, as Paul said, loved me and gave himself for me. How can we not love him in return? No matter of fact, scriptures tell us we must love him in return. And the true believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, does love our Heavenly Father because he first loved us. And then we see here, too, another reason why there are not many with Paul is because Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, we should be careful not to lump these two in with Demas, and that Demas deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica. Instead, it would seem reasonable that they were in their respective places because Paul sent them there. Uh, there was work to be done. Paul had himself planted churches in and around Galatia. And so it's reasonable to think that he would send Crescents there to build up the work in that area or to address some kind of concern that has risen there. Also, too, at the end of Paul's letter to Titus, we see that Paul tells Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, which was just south of Dalmatia. And so again, too, it's reasonable to think that Paul sent Titus to Dalmatia from Nicopolis. So we shouldn't lump these two in with uh, Demas as if they had deserted Paul too. But instead, because of the work that they had before them, they were not able to be with Paul. But there was one faithful friend who was there with Paul, as we see there in verse 11. Paul had his faithful companion Luke with him. Luke, this is the one who wrote the gospel that bears his name. He's the one who wrote the book of Acts. And from Acts, and, and Paul mentioning him in his letters as well, we know that he closely served with Paul for many years, that he even stuck by Paul through his first arrest and first imprisonment. And now again, then we see him sticking by Paul through this imprisonment. What a faithful friend Luke was. What a faithful partner in ministry. This one who we see in Colossians was a physician. And he there and he served with Paul. 
You know, it, it is only the grace of God to have such a faithful friend, to have one who is there through thick and thin, to have one who is a godly encouragement, support, and an example of faithfulness, that we should praise God for the Lukes that he brings into our lives. But for Luke alone to remain with Paul and to serve there in Rome, where it was so dangerous because uh, Rome is, is the heart and center of the persecution that was empire-wide. And so to ask Luke to be there alone, to be with Paul and to serve in that area was, was a lot to ask of him. And so then we read there, as verse 11 continues, Paul tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And if we know the history between Paul and Mark, we know that this is actually really good to read. Early on in the ministry, there was a riff between Paul and Mark, which then caused a riff between Paul and Barnabas. It would seem that, for whatever reason, we're not told, but, but Mark left Paul and Barnabas in the midst of their missionary journey. And then later on, Barnabas wants to take Mark with him again, and Paul says, no way. I can't trust him. And that caused Paul and Barnabas to have to go their separate ways. I think there may be some clues in the text to who was right and who was wrong, but, but the text really isn't clear on that. What is clear, though, is that whatever happened, whatever the circumstances were, whatever the purpose is in Mark leaving, and whichever one was wrong or right, there was reconciliation. And really, that's what's important to see. We know there is reconciliation by the way Paul talks about Mark in his letter to the Colossians and to Philemon and what we read here. That Mark was useful for the ministry, that, that Paul could entrust him to such important tasks of the ministry there in Rome, even during such time as persecution. So it's good to read this and, and see this, this, this reconciliation, which again is so important. Uh, there must be such reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. There's not one of us that has reached Christ-likeness yet, although that is the goal. And the Holy Spirit is always pressing us on and strengthening us and teaching us and convicting us through his word that we would be and must be growing in holiness. But the truth of the matter is, still none of us have reached it yet. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians that he hadn't yet reached it. While we are on this side of eternity, we will continually be needing to grow. And so that means there may be times where someone does something or said something that will hurt you or anger you, or that you may say something or do something that would hurt or anger them and cause a rift between you. The truth is, too, sooner or later, someone's going to let you down. And you're going to let somebody else down. Just as I will. We don't want that. But again, we, we're still growing. All of us. But knowing the love with which God loved us, how God provided salvation for us, how, how God forgave us, we ourselves then must be ready to forgive. 
And we must extend that forgiveness when there is repentance. And forgiving them, so allowing and giving opportunity for trust to be rebuilt. And in forgiving them and not continuing to hold that sin against them, uh, not either putting it in your back pocket too for a, a more convenient time, you know, when they mess up again and then you can just throw that in their face too and say, see, this is what you're always doing. Make it all the worse. No, no, that's not what forgiveness does. Forgiveness releases them from that sin debt. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 2, Paul said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, there is nothing that anyone can do to us. There's no sin that someone can sin against us that can match the sin that we have sinned against God. There's no debt of sin that needs to be paid towards us because of what someone did to us that, that matches the great debt of sin that we had towards God that Christ paid for us. There's no depths or lengths of mercy and grace that we could show that would come anywhere near the grace and mercy God showed us. And so if we are forgiven, then we must also be forgiving. When there's hurt, when trust has been broken, the true follower of Christ must pursue reconciliation. Not give up on each other, not write each other off, but do our part to see that there is reconciliation. And that will take work for sure, but we must put in the work. We must love as we have been loved. And so again, this is a great example for us to see this reconciliation between Paul and Mark. It's a wonderful thing, and we shouldn't let it go by us too quickly. And so Luke was to get Mark. Mark was useful. Or not Luke, sorry. Timothy was to get Mark. But as we're thinking about this, that Timothy was to get Mark and, and to come to Paul as, as soon as he could we might be thinking, well, wait a minute. If Timothy's to come to Paul, what's going to happen with the work there in Ephesus? Right? Clearly, we've seen in this letter that there was still work to be done and the truth still needed to be defended there. So, so what about that? Well, as we keep reading here and see in verse 12, Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus. It was Tychicus who delivered Paul's letter to the Ephesian church and to the Colossian church. And so there's reason to think here that Paul was sending him to deliver this letter and also to relieve Timothy there from Ephesus. And then in verse 13, we see that Timothy was to get Paul's cloak, which he had left in Troas with Carpus, and he was to bring it to him. Troas would have been on the way from Ephesus to Rome. In verse 21, it seemed to indicate that winter would soon set in, and so maybe Paul wanted his cloak so he could keep warm. And we don't know who Carpus is. Presumably, he's a believer that lived there in Troas. And some suggest that Paul may have left his cloak there because he was taken away in haste. 
And so some suggest that maybe Troas is where Paul was arrested by the Romans. We don't know, though. But nonetheless, that's where his cloak was, and, and Timothy was to, to get that cloak. And then next, Paul tells Timothy also to bring the books and above all, the parchments. Uh, the word books here could be translated as scrolls and likely contained the Old Testament, or at least books of the Old Testament. And then the word parchment here refers to animal hide that was treated so it would last, and it was very expensive, and so it was used to write important documents. And so Paul tells Timothy to get these things. Now, we might be asking, though, why? Like, what's the point of getting these scrolls and, and parchments? And he's already made it clear he expects to be executed soon. It's even possible, to be honest, that even as he's telling Timothy to come soon and to go get these things and get Mark and bring him with you, that it's possible Timothy and Mark may not get there in time. So what's the point of, of Timothy taking all the more time to gather these things, to get the scrolls and the parchment? It seems like a waste. Well, one thing about Paul is that he was diligent. And he gave his life for the glory of God. He was disciplined, and, and he did not waste very many moments. And so as is wise, until the Lord sovereignly would decide his time on this earth was up, as far as Paul was able, he was going to give himself to the work of the Lord. He's going to continue on as he always did, as much as he could, until the Lord took him out of this world. That means he was going to continue studying and continue writing to encourage the churches and minister to others. Whatever time he had, he was going to do the best he could with that time. Now, as I, I thought about that, uh, I, I thought about the 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, and how he endeavored to be to have such discipline in everything he did and every moment he had. And so between the ages of 19 and 20, he wrote 70 resolutions that he said by God's strength would guide his life if it was God's will for Christ's sake. And, and really, as we think of using our time well and think of Paul's discipline and, and striving to use the time he had, I, I thought looking at some of these resolutions would be beneficial for us especially some like, for example, his fifth resolution, where Jonathan Edwards said he was resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. The 17th resolution said this, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. The 18th, resolve to live so that at all times, as I think is best in my devout frames, and when I have clearest notions of things of the gospel and another world. His 19th resolution, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. And then we'll jump to the, the 50th of the 70. Resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have best been best 
and most prudent when I come into the future world. And last, his 55th resolution. Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments. How many of us can say when we were 19 and 20 we were thinking like this? How many of us can say we're thinking like this now? But brothers and sisters, can we be so resolved in our lives, in our living, to think how we should spend our time, to think how we will act and how we will be living each moment, not in the here and now, but with eternity in view, using our next breath as if it will be our last breath. Paul was resolved to do whatever he reasoned was most to the glory of God. And so as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, he was one who was a lifelong student and one who served. And so he was going to continue in that way. He's going to continue again to study and continue to write and serve others. He's going to continue to do what he could to be used by God as God saw fit for his glory. And should we do any less? In saying all this, again, it reminds me of those great quotes, right, from Alistair Begg, the passage, Plowing Your Soul, and Calvin saying, it's better to break your neck than to not preach that sermon to yourself, right? It's one of those. How do I use my time, and how do I think about my time? Even if we have no aware, uh, awareness of death being around the corner, how are we going to spend our remaining moments? And understanding, too, that just because we're not aware of death being around the corner doesn't mean it's not. I, I just read this week on Thursday of one of the speakers from the conference I was just at in March passed away, died Thursday morning in a car accident. So if you remember, pray for Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, as they have just lost their faithful shepherd, Harry Reader. Harry Reader. But again, we don't know. And so as we've been talking about, again, remaining faithful, as we've seen throughout this letter, the, uh, the Paul pressing Timothy to remain faithful, If we're going to remain faithful, we should ask ourselves, how faithful am I being with each moment that I have already? With each opportunity that God has given me? How faithful am I living now that I can have that assurance that I'm, I'm, I'm working, I'm, I'm pressing towards being faithful to the end? How am I living each moment that God has given me now and using it for his glory? And then as Paul continues here, in verses 14 through 15, Paul warns Timothy of a man named Alexander, a coppersmith, who did harm to Paul. He wronged Paul in some way. And who this coppersmith is, we don't really know. All we know is that he did harm to Paul. 
But one thing I think we can take away from this is that we see that Paul was not vengeful towards him, whatever that wrong was. Paul says here, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Which is really the attitude each one of us has to have if someone wrongs us. If someone sets themselves as an enemy against us and desires to hurt us, vengeance should not be our response. But instead, we need to humbly submit to God as judge and leave all judgment up to him. Which is exactly what Paul taught himself. As we see in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul did not seek vengeance, but left all judgment up to the Lord. Yet still, that did not stop Paul from bringing this man, Alexander, to Timothy's attention. Why? Because because he was a danger. He set himself as an enemy of the gospel. He opposed Paul and Timothy's message. And so Timothy had to be aware of the danger. We've talked about that. When, When someone is a danger, we need to warn about that danger. Specifically, we've discussed that when it comes to false teachers. It's important and vital. And then as as Paul continues here, going on into verse 16, there he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now, there's some debate by what Paul was referring to by his first defense. But it would seem, from what it says here, this is in reference to Paul being on trial, but either because of Paul's own defense or because of the lack of evidence against Paul, that they must have decided to call for a recess in order to gather more evidence against Paul. But we see here, during that trial, no other disciple stood in support of Paul. Now, clearly there must have been those who just weren't able to be there. You know, as, as we see later about Erastus and Trophimus, uh, clearly they wouldn't have been able to get there. And, and so this must be referring to the believers that lived in Rome, the Roman church, that no one from there came to support Paul and stand with him. And the reason must have been just their own fears. Uh, again, Rome was the center of the persecution that was going on there empire-wide. And so it's not that they deserted the faith. Again, he doesn't talk about them like he talked about Demas. And it's not that they really intended to desert Paul, but just in a moment of weakness, they didn't show up because they were afraid. And so we see here, Paul, full of compassion, says, may it not be charged against them. Paul was being understanding. He wasn't angry about it. And we should learn then from this. Because like Paul, we should be people who are understanding. And when someone does something that we don't like, that we think is wrong, and then they should have done something else, we should seek to believe the best about the person. 
right? That's what love does, right? We read that in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things, right? It's going to assume the best. And I think that's what we see Paul doing here. And therefore, Paul was able to keep a, a right and good perspective of the circumstances. And when we know, whatever our trial is, whatever our circumstances are, when we know, as Paul surely did, as, as seen there in verse 17, that Matt, no matter who does stand with us or who doesn't, that for sure the Lord stands with us. As he says here, the Lord stood with him and strengthened him. And therefore we see that this allowed Paul, knowing this, Understanding this allowed him to respond to his circumstances in the proper way, in the way the Lord called him to, just as it would for us, as we know the Lord is with us no matter what our circumstances are. We can then respond to those circumstances in a God-honoring way. So we see here that Paul, as he, he understood the Lord was standing with him and strengthening him as he was there in that first trial. A trial that would have been public and so likely had a, a large audience. We see the reason here the Lord stood with him and strengthened him. And we see that it wasn't just for Paul's sake. It was so Paul could fulfill his calling from the Lord. He says here that the Lord stood with him and strengthened him so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now, Paul likely had the opportunity to defend himself. And getting up to defend himself, he took the opportunity to proclaim Christ in his gospel with everyone there to hear, likely to Nero there to hear as well, Caesar. So he proclaimed the gospel just as he was chosen to do. Right As we read last week in Sunday school in Acts, that the Lord set him apart so that he would proclaim his name to the Gentiles, and to kings, and to the children of Israel. And that's exactly what he did in his circumstance here. Exactly what he is called to do. Paul was faithful to the gospel. He is faithful to his calling. He is faithful to his Lord and God, and faithful to the end. He knew the Lord was sovereignly fulfilling his purposes for his life. And so Paul could have the right perspective. And when we understand that God is sovereign, and when we're trusting in that sovereignty in our lives, we understand that God is working his purposes in our lives, in our circumstances, then trusting that sovereignty, we can then have the right perspective. And so we see here at the end of verse 17, Paul goes on to say, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, Paul was rescued from the immediate danger as they recessed, Again, likely, they recess to gather more evidence. And though it's clear that, that Paul had no hope of the same outcome when they reconvened, he knew that ultimately the Lord would rescue him. Rescue him not from death, and so not physically rescue him. Again, he had every expectation that he'd be executed. But as we see there in verse 18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Uh, which in context, I would argue, would include an unjust execution. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul had hope that was not of this world, but when, in what was ahead of him. 
Paul had no hope in the enduring of this temporary life, but in the everlasting promises of being with his Lord forever. That's what Paul hoped in. That's what kept Paul going, despite his suffering, despite everything he faced, not just here in prison and not just with execution around the corner, but that is what kept Paul going throughout his whole ministry, in every trial and every pain and suffering that he went through. This is what kept Paul remaining faithful, this eternal perspective. And we see that as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, referring to this physical earthly body, for if we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul longed to be clothed in his resurrection body. Paul lived with this eternal hope in view. He lived knowing one day he would be fitted to be with his Lord forever. This hope he had was not something that Paul himself earned, but it's what Christ purchased for him. What Christ purchased in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection power. And for all who trust in Christ because of who he is and what he's done, who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, all who are saved in Christ Jesus have this hope. We have this to look forward to. uh, The great reward when we stand as whole like our Lord before him to be with him forever. And so too, like Paul, we can live for God's glory, through everything, no matter what's going on, as we keep this perspective before us. That we could too, as we see Paul here, that in everything we could say, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Whatever it is, whatever the circumstance, to him be the glory forever and ever. He is the one deserving of all glory. He is the one worthy of glory, the only one worthy of glory. And being worthy of glory, he's worthy of my life being lived for his glory in all circumstances. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, the example that Paul is, what he was to Timothy, what he is for us. Then as we come to the final three verses of this letter, Paul tells Timothy to greet different ones. Tells him to greet Priscilla and Aquila, that that famous husband and wife duo. Tells him to greet those in the house of Onsiphorus. Onsiphorus was the one that we saw earlier in this letter that Paul pointed to as an example of faithfulness to encourage Timothy to remain faithful. And then this is where Paul tells Timothy of Erastus, that he was in Corinth, and how Paul 
clearly before he was arrested, left Trophimus at Miletus because he was sick. Obviously being sick, then he wouldn't be able to travel, so Paul had to leave him there. But then, again, he urges Timothy to come to him, urging him to do his best to get to Paul before winter set in. And then after naming some who send their greetings, Paul ends by saying in verse 22, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You could translate this as grace be with you all. It's a plural you there in the Greek. And this, this may include not just Timothy, but those whom Timothy was to pass greeting on to from Paul. Suzanne just told me last night that I guess Abner Chow argues that uh, this is referring to really all believers of all time. That is, Paul is writing his, his last recorded words and he's signing off not knowing when his death is going to come. He, he is expressing grace to all believers for all time. In any case, he's definitely expressing grace and wishing and praying for grace to be with Timothy. Timothy was going to need grace. If Timothy was going to remain faithful, he would need God's grace. And the truth is, too, whether or not this was meant for all believers of all time, all believers of all time need that grace. You and I need grace from God. Yes, we are responsible to persevere. We're responsible to remain faithful and faithful to the end, but we're only going to be faithful by God's grace. We need his grace. We need to look to him, depend upon him. It's in his strength that we must live. So we must keep the gospel before us and all that he has done and giving us this great hope that we have to live in view of, to, to remember how worthy he is of our lives being lived for him. He is worthy of our lives being laid down for him. And so as we continue with our trust and our hope in him, we look to him for grace and strength. We understand that he is the one who holds us up, that he is our, our hope, he who is our, our risen Lord. We look to him knowing, as we're going to sing, that he will hold us fast. Him who who died for me? Do I, do I think that, that the one who died for me is going to then desert me? No, not at all. He who has given me of his spirit, the guarantee of such great eternal promises, will he then leave me to myself? No. And he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. My friends, if we know that, we'll be looking to him and putting our trust in him, in him alone, that we would remain faithful and remain faithful to the end. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.